Lesson One: Basic Hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. And at thejazzsession.com, you'll find links to help you purchase the music you hear on the show and a donate button if you'd like to give something back. My guest today is trumpeter David Weiss. He's got a new album out on Sunnyside Records called Snuck In, and it begins with this Herbie Hancock tune, I Have a Dream. My guest is trumpeter David Weiss. He and his band Point of Departure have a new album called Snuck In on Sunnyside Records, and it's my pleasure to welcome David to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. This uh, this record just burns. I, I, I really love listening to it. Um, there's a lot to dig into in it, but there's also just a lot to kind of feel about it when you listen to it. And I thought maybe we could start off uh, talking about some of the source material uh, for the album, which seems to have kind of a, a late 60s thing going on. I thought you could talk a little bit about why you wanted to explore uh, that period. A few reasons. I mean, but I think the, the main reason is that um, it was very open music. So it was not the type of music that, even though I'm, I guess, technically doing repertory that could be approached that way, because the tunes have things built into them that makes you want to play it a different way every night. And that's the kind of thing I was looking for. I mean, some of them I kind of built that in myself <clears throat> but the bulk of the tunes um, the, the Charles Moore tunes all have this um, openness built into them um, so technically they can be approached a different way every night um, they all have these kind of queuing systems that, that um, can basically take it anywhere you want to and um, once you have the band attuned to that then, um, like, like I said it could, be a, it could be a different thing all the time so it's never like a hit, the low hit. 
and it's never just a swing thing or a groove thing. It's basically kind of wide open with some structure there. I mean, there's a hint of a melody always, and then there's a hint of like, okay, when it's a certain cueing system that just changes the key or the feel or, I mean, basically whatever they want. And um, that kind of thing uh, attracted me to that music. I can honestly say I don't know anything about Charles Moore. Can you tell me something about him? Well, it's kind of, I guess, been kind of like an underground musician thing for a while, but um, there was a group out of Detroit called uh, Kenny Cox and the Contemporary Jazz Quintet. And uh, they made two records for Blue Note. I think the first record they made, they recorded themselves in Detroit, and they actually, Blue Note put it out, and then I think Blue Note actually recorded them. And Charles was just, I mean, I guess he's one of three or four guys in the band that wrote for the group. Kenny Cox is also a great writer, and we do some of his tunes as well. But Charles wrote these tunes that, like I said, had that openness to them, and also had these, you know, like, you know, shifting time signatures and things like that that are very intriguing and musicians have been kind of been checking this stuff out for a while I mean I've had the record since college I've known about him and listened to him for like 20 or 25 years I've also gotten friendly with Charles um, but really the beauty of the group is they were the first group that really showed a strong influence of like the, you know Miles Davis quintet with Herbie Ron and Tony they they were the first who kind of like saw what that rhythm section was doing, how you know they did all this shifting and you know stopping on a dime and everything, and wrote tunes that kind of built that into the actual tunes instead of like with Miles where they would just play a standard and do that, or you know later on with Miles were you know Wayne Shorter playing all those Wayne Shorter tunes. But um, they were the first to kind of take that concept of like you know time changes, key changes, tempo changes, and all that, and kind of write material that made them do that instead of just doing it with everything. I mean, later on, like in the 80s, the whole Young Lions thing, they kind of did that. I mean, early Wynton Marsalis records like Black Coats and on the Ground sort of did that too. But these guys kind of did it like at the time, in the moment, like, you know, 1968, 69. Uh, Charles told me the record that did it for them all was Miles in the Sky. They listened to Miles in the Sky all the time. And kind of, you know, that was the band that kind of germinated. The record that kind of... <clears throat> solidified their group concept in their mind and they started writing music. And um, I believe they were only together for like two or three years, but those two records, you know, were very... I can't call them influential, but um, they definitely were onto something, you know, and it was something that a lot of us have checked out and used.
Do you think that music isn't better known just because of where they were geographically? See, that's hard to tell. I mean, that's the kind of the paradox of this music. I mean, I met Kenny Cox's wife last time I played in Detroit. She's like, nobody liked that music. <laughs> um, and a lot of people, you know, I mean, technically at the time, you know, the Miles Davis quintet with Herbie Ron Antonio was Miles' least popular time. So it's interesting to see if like time is kind to that you know but it was just you know it's complex music it's not for everybody I guess and when you don't have miles on top of it I think it becomes even maybe more difficult but yeah I'm sure some of it had to do with them never leaving Detroit um, that could be a big part of it and part of it is maybe wasn't very popular music I mean you know I joke you know I don't know how it's aged in 30 years I mean we're certainly putting a different spin on it too but, um, it's, yeah, it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell. And, you know, who knows, you know, if they stayed together a little longer, you know. It, you know, it was a different time, you know. In the, in the 60s, a lot of those Blue Note records, it wasn't like they made a record and then they did a world tour and hired a publicist. You know, they just made a record. It's hard, it's hard to know. But I would, I would think that just being a local Detroit band certainly had a lot to do with it. Um, but they're an, they're an interesting bunch. They started, um... After they did the Blue Note records, they started a Detroit label called Strata, and they recorded. They started recording more local acts, and they had a they had a venue too that was called I don't Strata something where they they bought in Freddie Hubbard and Joe Henderson, and they bought all these guys in to do concerts. Um, and they bought in Charles Tolliver, and at some point they were going to collaborate, and that's why Charles's label is called Strata East. Wow, Come that's cool! Of, I never knew all that. Yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so be it, but it's, it's hard to say. I mean, certainly they wrote some very intriguing material, you know. And um, like I said, it's only intriguing to me. They gave me something to work with. But the irony is you never know about these things. I, I might have played those tunes at this point more than they ever did. You know, you never know if it's like we wrote these tunes, we did a couple of gigs, we recorded for Blue Note, and put it all away. Um, and that's always the interesting thing about that stuff, I think, you know. Sometimes a lot of that material never got like fully developed either, you know, because of the circumstance the band didn't stay together very long, or it was just a one-off for a recording and the band never toured. I mean, there's certainly a lot of different kind of music out here, but a lot of it, you know, sometimes grows organically if you're touring and playing it a lot, and it turns into something else because you're playing it a lot, and you have to, you know, you're faced with choices and decisions about what to do with this music every night, as opposed to, you know, writing it, rehearsing once or twice, and recording it. And doing it again so I think that's part of the thing too I'm grabbing tunes that you know maybe are worthy of a little more examination than that or they're, they're more conducive to something like that where you know okay what happens when you play it for five months you know you're forced to come up with something new every night and is that why you chose to do an album where you played other people's music obviously you're well known as a, as a writer too uh, because you wanted to give it give those tunes that that chance to, to see the light of day again? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. I think, I mean, I made a conscious decision, like, because I didn't know how it happened. All of a sudden, I was a writer and a ranger and not a trumpet player, and it wasn't my decision. <laughs> I still don't know how it exactly happened. Um, and at some point, I actually did, you know, say, like, how did this happen? Wait a second. I want to play trumpet now. Um... 
And I found one of the things is that, you know, I do a lot of writing, and actually my two other bands are very composer-based and all about, you know, a lot more about the writing. But I felt that writing was never... I don't know how to put it. Um, maybe I wrote myself into a trap. I was never able... As a trumpet player, it didn't intrigue me. As a musician, as a composer, I really liked what I wrote, and I liked the group concept and ever, but it never... I don't know. I never gave my trumpet muscle room to flex or something. So I was looking for also material that was just more interesting to me as a trumpet player because apparently the two aren't intertwined. I apparently cannot write music that I'm interested in doling on as a trumpet player. But the sax players seem to enjoy it. Um, so it was partially that. It was just partially finding stuff that was more open or intriguing to me as a, as a trumpet player. And also, you know, I wanted to have a more open, free band. I don't like playing the same thing or the same way every night. So it had to have that kind of stuff built into it where these guys had to think every night. So, I mean, it's partially that and partially like, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of material out there that, you know, these guys are great composers and, you know, did a one-off 40 years ago. <laughs> you know, that shouldn't be the end of it sometimes. That's really fascinating. I don't, I don't think in all the hundreds of interviews I've done, I've ever heard anyone say that the music they write isn't really the music they particularly like to play their their instrument on. Is that is that a function I know, that kind of, of sucks, doesn't it? I I would think it would. I, is that a function of initially getting like arranging projects that were for somebody else's music uh, or what? No, how, how did that come no, to be? I mean, no, I don't I don't know what it is. I mean, I'm not saying I, I sounded terrible on it, but it just just wasn't totally in my wheelhouse. I mean, I mean, I personally hear it in other people's music when I hear. It, how they play in other situations and I hear how they play on their music. It's hard to broach that subject to somebody. <laughs> you know, because in a way you're saying like, well, you know, I've heard you sound a lot better. But I, I think it's I think it's prevalent. I think what happens is, you know, when you're writing for your own band, I mean, that's that's the strength of it. You're going for a certain sound and a certain concept. And, you know, your soloing is important, but I mean, not as, as important as the overall. I mean, I, I did play on this stuff and did okay. It just didn't seem like an ideal situation. Maybe, you know, maybe there's a more formal structure the way I write or, you know, it just the music deserved to be played a certain way. It's 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 not something I can entirely put my finger on, except to know that, you know, when I can control the material and it's not just my tunes, I can find more interesting tunes to play on or something. It's hard to say. I mean, it was always with the, with the new jazz composed octet and my sextet, I mean, you know, I mean, we were writing music. I mean, you know, you have to have to respect what you wrote and and do it justice. And there's certainly a group sound to it. And the, you know, the, like I said, the overall had a certain concept to it. It just it just wasn't the best situation for me. Um, which sounds weird enough because I wrote the music, but I wrote the music at the piano, not on the trumpet. And you know, and I love it. I love what I wrote. I'm really happy with it. I just the saxophone music apparently. The saxophone <laughs> players love to play on it. <laughs> Maybe another trumpet player would like it. Um, but, I mean, again, it was, you know, it's about respecting what you wrote, or, you know, like, it, it, it locks you into a certain thing conceptually. At least the way I wrote that stuff, it had to be a certain thing. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, I just thought this material was, like I said, more conducive to a certain group sound and a certain kind of playing, and, you know, it's a, kind of, it's a more open kind of thing. So, it's, yeah. Just flexing different muscles, and you know, apparently I can't flex all muscles all the time. 
Also, if you've got to be a full-time trumpet player and not writing as much as you used to. This um, this band point of departure is really packed with uh, a bunch of people that I love listening to. Would you tell folks uh, who's in this band? Well, the tenor sax player is J.D. Allen. Um, guitarist is Near Felder. Uh, bass player is Matt Closey, and uh, drummer is Jermyer Williams. Um, J.D. I've known J.D. for a long time. I mean, from the early '90s, maybe even. Um, I never found the, quite the right project to do with him. I always, I mean, from the first note I heard of him, I was always intrigued with his sound. He had a beautiful sound from day one and somebody who actually worked on his sound. And I don't think everybody does that as much anymore. I don't think it's the strongest emphasis when people are, I mean, working out what they work out on their instruments anymore. And he had a compelling sound from, from day one and from note one that I heard from him. And so, I mean, he's a perfect foil for that because, I mean, He's just got a beautiful sound. And when we play lines together and everything, it's just, he's a very musical guy. And he's finally getting his due. I mean, you know, I've produced a lot of stuff and I've discovered a lot of guys. But I met J.D. maybe a little before I had people ask me about people, so I never could quite do for him what I did for some other people. But now he's getting his due. And it's well-deserved. I can't even remember where I found the guys now. I tried a lot of different drummers. I mean, all my bands, it's always been about trying drummers for a few months. And Jamira was the strongest guy. Jamira now is playing with Christian Scott, I guess, most, and Jackie Terrison, and um, got one other gig. Oh, he's doing Lonnie Smith, too. It's the same story. I mean, I've, I put these bands together before. Nobody knows who any of these guys are. And by the time that my record comes out, because they're all pretty well established. Lucas Curtis is actually the original bass player for this, but he wasn't around for the live date, and that close is kind of morphed into the regular bass player. He's been playing with uh, John Hollenbeck's big band and uh, Darcy James Argue's big band. Really the secret weapon. I don't think people really know about him, but he's really a complete bass player. You know, he, really, he really understands the music. He can really, really shift on a dime. I mean, all these guys count. I mean, you know, this is 
this is pretty open music, so a lot of it's on them. They can't rely on what's written on the page to get through the night. They really got to be creative and come up with some stuff. Yeah, Matt. Uh, Matt used to uh, to fill in a fair amount um, in a band called the Respect Sextet, who are friends of mine and uh, recorded the theme music to the show as a matter of fact and so I've met Matt a bunch of times over the years and uh, always been just super impressed and I totally agree with you that he is in many ways kind of a secret weapon he's just he's all over the place yeah. and uh, I like guys like that yeah but even he, he's getting his dues I mean he's getting busy but he's, he's an excellent excellent bass player and uh who's left oh Nier uh, you're starting to get some attention too now um I mean, he was actually, he's, when putting a group together conceptually, I mean, he was the key. Um, I never liked guitar players before very much, or just didn't find much use for them. I certainly loved listening to them growing up, because I started rock and roll and fusion, and that's all guitar-heavy music. Um, but in jazz, I mean, any of the jazz stuff I did, I never heard it. So the guitar player was key, because... I didn't want a guy who had, you know, I wanted a guy who had a lot of chops, but you know, didn't need to show it every second of every day. Um, as far as like, more important thing was, you know, the chord instrument's got to be more of a colorist and kind of create a vibe. Um, so I didn't want a guitar player who was determined to show he can comp as much as a piano player would, and that, you know, we wouldn't miss a piano. It's like, well, I don't want that. He's he's got that. He's, um, he's a promising guy. He's starting to get some some gigs himself. It's a it's a tough position to be in because it's another lost art, I think, um, the art of accompaniment. I mean, I don't know. I guess maybe because everybody goes to school now and everything. I mean, I think the emphasis is on a lot of different things. And I have the same problem with piano players coming up now. Um, what they don't seem to understand, I think, maybe it's just older guys or something is like a horn player doesn't care as much about how much chops you have. I mean, you're comping behind them. You're accompanying them, and your job is to make them look good. And if you don't make them look good, you know, they're not going to hire you, essentially. And um, I think that art is kind of being lost. Like I said, I don't hear as many piano players. I hear a lot of great solos coming up, and a lot of guys with very strong concepts. The art of comping, the art of accompaniment, that's not quite there as much. And with this, this music, fortunately, a lot of that stuff is built in. Again, with the Charles Moore tunes, there's all these pedal points and time changes that all the guitar player really, or the rhythm instrument has to do is reinforce those. That's where the groove comes from. And um, I mean, that's, that's the jumping off point. So when he came into band, I was like, okay, you hear this, these tunes, they all are in four, but they have these pedal points in three or this, this rhythmic, repeated rhythmic figure, all you have to do is reinforce that, and I'll love you. And what you do after that, you know, will all be gravy. Um, and he seems to understand that. He's, you know, he's come a long way in the three years that I've, I've heard him. I think he's, he's playing with Greg Osby now. And, uh, I forgot who else. Yeah, he was Try just on a record that I I really like, and I can't remember whose record it is. I think it's even someone I interviewed, which is even more embarrassing that I can't remember who it is. But he was just on a record that just came out, which is the first time I ever heard of him, and then this was the second uh-huh. um, on your record. But yeah, I've I've really been been impressed with what I've heard. Guitar, I guess there's five million of them out here, but I guess it's a tricky instrument to find the right guy to do stuff. I mean, I've always thought, again, you know, as a band leader, just you know, they're it's pieces of a puzzle. It's like you know, putting together a basketball team or something. 
know, they can't all be superstars. Somebody's got to pass the ball. <laughs> Somebody's got to rebound. So it's it's always a delicate, you know, and they all have to get along with each other too. Um, so it's always a delicate balance. You never, I don't think you end up with what you go in thinking you're looking for or something. I mean, it's 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 just another part of the process. You know, what, what I usually do when I put a band together. Fortunately, with Point of Departure, I had this regular Thursday night gig for a while, for about six months, and I had everybody come through there, and it just became clear who was right. Not everybody has that luxury sometimes. Um, I had actually attempted to put the band together a couple of years before that and never found the right guys, nor had the, the residency like that to keep trying guys every week and seeing what will work, what combinations work. You know, what guys, you know, once you're on the bandstand actually playing this stuff, which guys would really, you know, figure out what's what. Um, so that six months that we did at um, Backhead, actually, when they still had a separate room, it was great. You know, you can, you know, I'm never going to be a superstar, so I'm never going to have a band out here touring eight months out of a year, so it's never going to come that way. But I found now this, I mean, I guess this is my third or fourth time around, if at the beginning, if you're working regularly or you're at it every week or something, there's something that grounds you during that time that you never lose. Like, I could put my octet together, back together tomorrow, and they'll be great. Four or five different bass players and, you know, settled on the guys I thought were the best. And they wanted to do it. So it kind of worked out. You've, uh, you've mentioned it a couple times. Will you tell folks about uh, the new jazz composer's octet? Uh, um, that was my first band, um, which is now 14. Can that be possible? 14 years old. Um, it was essentially put together as a composer's collective. Um, the story goes back further than that. It was sort of like at the end of the Young Lions craze in a production company I worked with. Got asked to make a bunch of demo tapes for a lot of the young upcoming artists because it was a French label and they weren't like in New York with their finger on the pulse of anything and they wanted to hear it. You know, everybody else was signing these 20-year-olds. They wanted, did a few of their own. So um, I produced about five or six different demos and well, nobody blew me away as a you know a soloist or anything like that. I just 
found all these guys that were writing great music and I wanted to find a way to kind of motivate them to do more of that or more to stretch themselves so I put together a five horn thing it's an eight piece band with five horns to give them kind of like a little larger than they're used to palette to work with and um we at that point when I was talking about informative stages we got together every week for like a year and a half two years um and guys just kept bringing in music every week and it got better every week to a point where like well I guess we need to do a kick or something um so we started doing some gigs and then a few more years into it, I, you know, I got the idea of the AP's band working on a Freddie Hubbard record with these same producers, um, and the idea there was to use more horns to kind of, you know, when Freddie first you know, started losing his chops a bit, um, and the idea was to make a, you know, make it a larger ensemble thing to um, help buffer him. Um, and I became friendly with Freddie at the date, and he kind of kept an eye on the group and our progress, and when our first CD came out, we included one of his tunes, and I sent it to him, and he called me up and said, you know, we should do this. This is, you know, this is a good idea. So the band started from 2000 till, I guess, 2008 when Freddie passed. We were kind of his backing band. I wrote, you know, arrangements for five horns for a lot of his tunes. We took the heat off of him. All he had to do was solo. He didn't have to do any ensemble work anymore. And he could pick his spots and, you know, sound the best he could. And it got the band working more and, you know, got us out in the world a little bit. So it was, you know, it was a nice little trade-off but uh now we're all <laughs> um i mean jimmy green teaches in canada now full-time and everybody's got like wives and kids i mean like i said we'll get together and do a gig and everyone now again in the last couple of years ago i guess we did a record and we still have another album's worth of material to do but the band for all intents and purposes has kind of slowed down a bit i mean it's always been a labor of love because Eight-piece composers collective is not going to tour the world, <laughs> make a million dollars. Um, but it'll, it's, it'll always be there. I mean, it was you know a lot of you know again we were all young. You know, last time we got together, we all joked how we were all single, and our and I think I was the oldest guy when the band got together, and I was thirty, thirty maybe. Um, and now everybody's married. Everybody has children. <laughs> But he, more importantly, has other gigs. So, I mean, you know, it's almost like a reunion tour now when we get together. And certainly it's a young man, that part of it is a young man's thing where you're rehearsing every week and you're dedicated to something that, you know, it's just, you know, just purely for the music and, you know, sitting, sitting there and writing long form through composed eight piece, you know, <laughs> just either, you know, I might have to get a bunch of new, young, ambitious guys, but, uh, I mean, I used to motivate them by getting them grants. They've all, you know, won composer, you know, composition grants and stuff like that. Um, but I mean, it's it's been a good run. Like I said, we we have enough material because of a grant I got and the grant that Xavier Davis has to do one more record, and someday hopefully we'll do it. What uh, what's coming up on the near horizon for you? Many things actually. I just got back from Europe with Odin Pope. He's got a new CD out. And, um, which actually, ironically, is an eight-piece band. Um, and we have a few more tours coming up in uh, August and September. My other project I put together on, I put together the point of departure to get me to play trumpet more is this group called The Cookers, which is, um, well, older guys, older than me at least. Uh, Billy Harper, 
uh, Eddie Henderson, George Cable, Stephen McBee, and Billy Hart. And um, we just did two records. Actually, that's what I'm out here doing now. I'm in the studio mixing one of the records for Jazz Legacy Productions, and that's going to come out next month. Um, and then we did one for a French label that's going to come out in Europe in the fall and in the U.S. early next year. And it's another collective kind of thing. Everybody brings in tunes. You know, I kind of arrange them for the Four Horn group. That's where I've learned how to play with the kind of energy you hear in Point of Departure. Playing with guys like Billy Harper and Charles Tolliver who kind of go for the drug dealer and go out all the time. They taught me that it's, a, you know, to go for it, essentially. You know, don't worry. Don't worry about it. So why didn't you make a few mistakes? I sort of already knew that, but then once you stand next to Billy Harper and hear, hear that, and you're like, oh, okay, uh, thought I knew how to do that. <laughs> let me let me go to the gym, <laughs> run or, run ten miles, and you know, do some push-ups and see if I can. You know. So um, that band's a lot of fun for me. I mean, those are a lot of unsung, unheralded guys in that band who are some of the heaviest musicians still alive. Billy Harper and Cecil McBear, you know, some of the heaviest, most unsung guys I've ever dealt with. Um, and George Cable and Billy Hart—they're no slouches either. Um, but that—I mean, that band. I mean, we we tore a bit more, and like I said, you know, we just did our first couple of records. I'm pretty excited about those. Um, there's a four pointer departure stuff coming out. That was just the first set. We recorded live with the Jazz Standard, and that was the first set. So the second set's going to come out next year. And we also did a studio record for a French label. That's, I guess, a more jazzy, not as insane version of the a lot of the same material. Well, that's great, but, uh, man. I mean, that's that's quite a yeah. list. <laughs> yeah, no, it's. I mean, yeah, it's good. It's actually starting to work a little bit. You know, not everybody gets the chance to make a decision to try and re uh, do a redo oneself and try to you know change people's perception of what they do and what they are. And it's, it's starting to work a little bit. It's encouraging. Well, that's great. I'm glad to hear it. I, I still still more people call me an arranger than a trumpet player, but. We're working on it. <laughs> well, my guest is uh, David Weiss, and he and his band Point of Departure have a new record on Sunnyside called Snuck In, uh, most of it recorded live at Jazz Standard, and uh, it is well worth repeated listening. I highly recommend it. David, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you about the music, and uh, I'd love if you come back and we can do it again. Yeah, that'd be great.
That's trumpeter David Weiss from his new album Snuck In on Sunnyside Records. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. And at TheJazzSession.com, you will find some links to help you purchase the music you hear on the show. And a little bit of that purchase price comes back to The Jazz Session. And you'll also find a donate button if you feel like the show has brought some joy and happiness to your life and you want to give a little uh, money back in return, I would be happy to take it. My friends in the Respect Sextet have a CD release party coming up for their new album. Please check them out at respectsextet.com. It's coming up in August at uh, LPR in New York City, and I highly recommend that you check it out. That's respectsextet.com. Thank them for the uh, theme music to this show, and thanks to Dave Rabel for the show's logo. Thank you so much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. <laughs>